Well, I was not allowed to go to movies growing up. That might come as a shock to you, but if you grew up in a very conservative, white, evangelical family and church in the Midwest, that would make a lot more sense to you. But there was an unwritten rule in both my house and the church I grew up in about the dangers of movie theaters. They were the devil's playground, the place where evil lurked around every corner, a surefire gateway into the more dangerous things like adult video stores and escort services. What made it even worse for me that was in my family where we weren't even allowed to go to a blockbuster video rental store because even those were dangerous. They had cardboard cutouts and R-rated movies and the little dark corner of the store where kids were not allowed to go. And all of this was a whirlwind of temptation and seduction and danger and potential life-threatening sinful desires right before our very eyes. And over the years, I grieved the loss of missing out on once-in-a-lifetime theatrical opportunities like Jumanji and Jurassic Park and Toy Story and The Sandlot and Hook and Lion King and so many more. But when our family moved from the Midwest to the more progressive ministry outpost of Scranton, Pennsylvania, they began, my family, my parents began to loosen the movie theater conviction and rumors were spreading about a potential Peterson outing to a movie theater. And then, on a cold Christmas day in 2005, my parents informed me that we would be going on an adventure together. So I hopped in the car, unsure of where we were going, but pleading with the Lord Jesus Christ himself for the rumored trip to the promised land. And as we pulled up to the parking lot of the movie theater, the awe and excitement set in. The walk to the building, the voice from behind the window, the slide of these perforated printed out tickets, and the lit up door marking our crossing from death to life. And as we entered, I was blown away by what I saw. There were popcorn machines, and there were flashing lights and screens and this terribly designed carpet and an overwhelming joy at the thrill of it all. My whole life of waiting and being made fun of for not being allowed to go to movie theaters, wondering what I was missing out on was leading up to this moment. And the waiting was finally coming to an end. And the time was here as I nervously but excitedly walked down the hall to Theater 11 to watch my very first movie, wondering if all the years spent waiting would be worth it in the end. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. If you are new to the Bible, please feel free to consult the table of contents and find the book of Acts in the New Testament, and we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. If we've not met yet, my name is Joseph. Again, want to add to Russ's welcome and just say welcome to you. We're really glad that you are here this morning. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and over the course of the next few weeks, we're spending time before Advent looking at how the early church embodied a culture of hope and generosity and peace despite the ongoing continued disruption to the normal rhythms and routines of their life. So last week, we kicked off the series by looking at this idea of waiting. 
and how waiting is central to the Christian faith and really the bedrock of what it means for us as a community to live a life of hope. So if you missed that, feel free to go back and listen to the podcast. Today, we are going to be continuing this theme of waiting by looking at the early church's commitment to waiting for God's presence. Waiting for God's presence. So, Acts chapter 2, we are going to start reading in verse number 1. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, right off the bat, we learn a few things about what is happening in this passage. This day of Pentecost was the start of this Jewish holiday and festival that occurred 50 days after Passover, hence the name Pentecost, uh, which means 50th day. And this was this ancient festival for the people of God uh, that inaugurated, that was inaugurated all the way back in Exodus 23 in celebration of all that God has done for the community. But at this year's Pentecost, in Acts 2, things were very, very tense. The Romans had just staged this mass execution just before Passover of this Yeshua bin Miriam, Jesus born of Mary. This rabbi was secretly and unjustly handed over to the Romans for execution by the Judean religious leaders on the eve of this feast, which put everybody, not just in the community, but on the city on edge. There was a swirling mix of hope and anxiety and fear in the air in the city of Jerusalem. We're also told that they are together in one place. And that begs the question, who is this they? What is happening? What is this community experiencing? Well, we learned last week in chapter 1 that they are these leftover disciples or apprentices of this crucified Messiah named Jesus of Nazareth. This poor, brown, peasant rabbi that traveled from city to city announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. And some people responded to this Jesus with intrigue, and some were offended, some demanded crucifixion, and a very select few group of people trusted this Messiah's message about good news for the poor and healing for the sick and freedom for the captive and liberation for the oppressed. And this small core group of faithful apprentices of the way of Jesus believed that God's salvation and liberty had arrived through the life and death and resurrection of this Messiah. They had trusted this good news and had reoriented their entire life around this way of Jesus. But now, they were caught in a season of waiting, a moment of waiting. Because Jesus had already come and announced the good news of the kingdom of God and the reign of God, but Jesus was gone now. And no one knew what to do. Who do we talk to? What do we do? How do we respond? Who do we listen to? Who's in charge? What do we believe anymore as a community? What happens next? It was a moment of confusion and disorientation and anxiety and a loss of hope, which we all can relate to in this season of our lives. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared 
to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, regardless of whether you grew up in the church or you've ever come across this passage before, it's still a very admittedly strange scene. Wind rushing through the room and divided tongues of fire and a spirit of utterance. This scene in Acts 2 would have been no less strange in first century Jerusalem than it would be if we experienced the same thing in this room in 21st century Spokane. In fact, in verse 12, later in the chapter, we read that some of the bystanders were, quote, amazed and perplexed. And they said to one another, what does this mean? Some made fun of them and said, ah, they've had too much wine. Clearly, whatever is happening does not make sense for anyone, let alone the people in the community. And yet, this moment for a small, seemingly insignificant group of disciples who were stubbornly committed to the foolishness of the way of Jesus somehow embodied a culture of waiting and in so doing ushered in a new reality for the beautiful reign of God's love and justice and power and liberation in the world. Now, we can't really understand the significance of this moment on its own because, as you can tell, uh, there is a lot of story that, become, that comes before Acts chapter 2. Uh, in fact, 1,019 chapters in the story before we come to this chapter in Acts 2. So we won't have much success in knowing how powerful and provocative and inspiring and hopeful this text actually is unless we unpack of the significance of this moment in the context of the whole story. So this morning, we are going to trace the movement of waiting for God's presence through the story of Scripture and specifically through four different locations. We're going to be looking at a garden, a tabernacle, a person, and a people. A garden, a tabernacle, a person, and a people. So first, a garden. In the very beginning of the story, we read that God, this community of love, created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God hovered over the chaotic waters of the deep and brought forth this incredible order out of disorder, and the world was created. Humanity was then created as these co-rulers, these images of God, these divine representatives, and they were called to partner with God and create a world in which heaven and earth could dwell together. They were commissioned by God to create a place, a literal geographical lo location where the presence of God would be and heaven and earth would overlap. And this place would be filled with God's presence and God's love and God's justice in the world and goodness and love would saturate every aspect of creation. And the goal of this divine project was that these people, humanity, would partner not only with God but with each other to create a world that was filled with culture and language and arts and food and dance and drink and architecture and technology and education and sex and family and vocation and so much more, and all of it would be blessed by God 
and would lead to the flourishing of all humanity. That was the vision for creation. And if you know the story, you know that despite God's presence being with them, instead of faithfully co-ruling creation alongside God, we are told that we were sabotaged by our own desire to rule ourselves, and this heaven and earth space was broken. And this vision for a world that was filled with love and justice and beauty and goodness had collapsed into a world of injustice and grief and sorrow and chaos. But God was so committed to the world that God eventually reestablished this project of bringing heaven and earth back together by choosing one family to bless and partner with that would eventually host God's presence in the world. Which leads us to our second location, a tabernacle. Over time, despite this family growing in numbers and wealth and influence in the world, eventually they found themselves enslaved in the land of Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years. This family, though large in number, had no land, had no home, had no culture. Anything that they had was given to them by the Egyptians. They had been enslaved for generations and had all but forgotten who they were and what God had called them to do in the world. But God worked with what God had, and despite all the limits and difficulties of the situation, God established a new way for God's presence to dwell in their midst. In this story, we read that God rescued this family from slavery and gave them a blueprint for recreating a space where heaven and earth could dwell together. It was called a tabernacle. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of different words that describe this space. Uh, In the early parts of the story, it's called a temple. It's called a tabernacle. Later, um, or excuse me, it was called a tent and then a temple and a tabernacle. And those words are used kind of interchangeably throughout the story. But it started as this giant tent in the middle of the desert and ended up as a glorious temple in the city of Jerusalem. The goal of this temple was to be a space where heaven and earth could overlap, where God's presence would dwell with the people and God could rest with them and God's love and justice would expand out into the world and be a blessing for all people. All the nations would soon hear about and be captivated by the love and justice and goodness and liberation of this God existing among the people. And as this family continued to grow and God's presence brought justice and beauty and equity and provision and so much more, this tabernacle became a place where God's presence was resting on the nation of Israel, but not just for Israel, but it was actually for the whole world. And this temple wasn't just a random space that was like really nice and beautiful for people to come into. This temple was filled with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and gold and jewels and designed to captivate an imagination of what the garden must have been like for God's people. And this project of heaven on earth was finally back on track. Hope seemed to be renewed and joy was palpable and this future blessing for the people was secured. But eventually, over the course of generations, this family 
this group of people that God had chosen to represent God's love to the world was broken. They had lost their vision and were led astray by corrupt corrupt politicians and religious leaders who became more influenced by politics and money and power and fame and status than they were with this God of liberation and justice and healing and flourishing for all society. And despite warnings and problems and wars and famines and injustices, this nation ignored the counsel of prophetic voices in their midst and instead chose to align themselves with the powerful and influential cultural and religious elites of the day, which, of course, we know nothing about in this country. Eventually, God removed God's hand of protection, and the city was invaded, and this temple, this glorious place of God's presence dwelling with the people, was destroyed, and the people were exiled, and the presence of God would remain unrealized for hundreds and hundreds of years. But a lowly prophet named Joel in the north of Israel refused to leave his people distraught and without hope and gave a prophetic proclamation. This is what God says to the people. In those days, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your daughters and sons will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, women and men alike. Now, this announcement was unheard of for the nation of Israel and the people of God. Because for hundreds and hundreds of years, the presence of God, the spirit of God, was only accessible to a very select group of people at random times throughout history. Almost no one had actual access to God's presence. God's presence existed in the garden, but eventually the presence of God was only accessible by one male priest once a year in the Holy of Holies. So everybody in this room, if we were representative of the nation of Israel, none of us would have access to God's presence except for one person one day a year. Imagine what that must have been like. God was only accessible by a very select group of people. What about women? What about the sick? What about children and the widowed and diseased and Gentiles? All of these people had limits on the access to God's presence and blessing in the world. But now Joel is telling us that God's presence will be with all people, with men and women, young and old. And for almost everybody, this seemed absolutely impossible. This was heretical, actually. This was completely contradictory to hundreds of years of revelation and tradition and experience and was literally too good to be true. At least it was until our third location. A person. And this person, this poor peasant rabbi from the middle of nowhere in Lower Galilee region of Israel announced that God had made God's dwelling place among the people. I am the temple, he said. I am the tabernacle. 
This overlap of heaven and earth exists within me. And I have come to announce that the kingdom of God was here. No longer would God's presence be confined to a tent or a temple or a religious leader or the Holy of Holies. I am the presence of God in the earth, this rabbi said, and I have come to bring life. But the problem with this message of the kingdom of God and heaven on earth and God's presence dwelling with God's people was that now it's still only in Jesus and normal people don't have access to it. Jesus is awesome. He's this rabbi. He's traveling around. He's healing people. That's amazing. But what about me? What about my circumstances? What about my past? What about my experience? That's great for you, Jesus, but isn't this supposed to be for all of us? And Jesus is really limited by his location and the amount of time he can give to people. He's a normal human being. He has limits. This sounds awesome, but what about the people? What about the poor, the Gentile, the immigrant, the women, the peasants, the widows, the common folks? This already not yet work of the presence of God is amazing for sure, but still incomplete. Because we are still waiting on God's promise of restoration. Joel promised that God would pour out God's spirit on all people, and we still, even in Jesus, have not experienced that yet. We are still waiting. And in fact, Jesus himself said in John 16 that very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I go away. Unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send her to you. So even the people following Jesus were waiting. And this tension, this despair and frustration and anxiety of waiting for the promises of God to be realized is real, it is valid, and it's a necessary work of faith. And all of this brings us 1,019 chapters back to our passage for today and the culmination of this entire story. All of this leads us to a people. Look with me at Acts 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the, the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both women and men, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. This has been what the entire story has been about. God partnering with humanity to create a place, a city, a people where heaven and earth would overlap in God's beautiful reign of love and justice and liberation and healing and flourishing would break out into the world. This was the point. This moment of Holy Spirit falling on the people was what we have been waiting for in the story. 
but it didn't happen how anyone expected it to. This presence wasn't just falling on the kings of Israel. It wasn't just falling on the priests. It wasn't just falling on the men. It wasn't just falling on the Jews. This was falling on everyone. Women, Gentiles, tax collectors, the poor, the disabled, the widowed, the immigrant, the eunuchs, those farthest from the centers of power. In this moment, this outpouring of Holy Spirit on God's people was specific and intentional because this Pentecost ushered in a new age of ministry and prophecy in the world. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will what? You could say it out loud. It's okay to get it wrong. You can look right down. Love one another. Also, prophesy. Yes, thank you to all of you for uh, your interaction. I just, a lot of energy in the room. That's amazing. They will prophesy. And prophesy wasn't about telling the future or predicting end times or preaching from a pulpit. pulpit. Prophecy was the point. I will pour out my spirit on all people and they will prophesy. Yes, thank you. Prophecy was and is the primary way that we respond to God's call and speak truth in the world. This is one of the primary ways that we bring heaven to earth even now. Prophecy is the way that we communicate God's love to others. Prophecy is both a calling for justice and an action in the face of injustice. It is a challenging of the way things are and a bringing of hope when hope seems lost. This moment, this Pentecost moment in Acts 2 happened so that you sitting here today could actually host the presence of God in your own life. And you might be thinking, okay, cool, but I'm not a prophet. I don't preach. I don't plant churches. I don't have words of knowledge or speak in tongues or any of that stuff. And that might be true for some of you. But listen to what womanist theologian Dr. Will Gaffney says. She writes this. There is more than one way to be a prophet, and the church needs them all. Prophets stand between God and the people, bringing God's word to the people and the people's word to God. Like Moses, like Moses, prophets lead the people from slavery to freedom, singing new songs and dancing new dances like Miriam. Prophets demonstrate the power of God doing things that no one else can do, like Elijah and Elisha. Prophets protect the people and when the enemy comes against the people of God, prophets take up arms to defend them like Deborah. Prophets whisper in the ears of queens and kings, presidents and prime ministers, whether they listen or not, like Mandela or Maya. They were scholar prophets like Huldah, who knew more of the word of God than any man around her. There were social justice prophets like Micah and Amos and Martin and Malcolm. There were praying prophets and prophets who saw visions and prophets who dreamed of a better world. So what is your dream for a better world? 
What stirs your heart? What injustice breaks you and keeps you up at night? What is Holy Spirit, maybe in, even in this moment right now, calling you to prophetically step into? Because you are now the garden. You are now the tent. You are now the tabernacle. You are now the person. The person in whom the Spirit of God dwells and the place where heaven and earth come together. You are now the thin space. You are now the holy of holies, the beloved presence of God on the earth. And this city is desperate for a prophetic church. It is groaning for a people to host the presence of God. This Pentecost moment is one that calls all of us, old and young, employed and unemployed, excited and anxious, well-off and struggling to get by. This Pentecost moment calls all of us to take the mantle that God has entrusted to us and see heaven come to earth in our lives around us.